Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 166 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're having a wide-ranging conversation with best-selling author Ryan Holiday about billionaires, nine-figure lawsuits, conspiracies, ancient philosophy, and growth hacking, (laughs) obviously. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Spotlight Branding, and New Law Business Model. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. So a few weeks ago, we announced our new small firm scorecard at lawyerist.com slash scorecard. And if you've taken it and are interested in engaging with us to help you improve your score on the scorecard, we're launching a year-long program called the Lawyerist Lab, which you can sign up for at lawyerist.com slash lab. It's an invitation-only process. So by filling out an application, you aren't buying anything. You're just getting on our radar that you might be interested, and then we'll see if it's a good mutual fit. We're trying to find the right lawyers who we can be the most helpful to and to bring them deeper into our community. It will also be the only way that one can get into the invitation list for our upcoming Lawyerist Lab Con, which is the new name for what used to be TBD Law. And so we're really looking for the right people. And if you think you might be one of them, check it out at lawyerist.com lab. Now here's our conversation with Ryan. But first, a brief conversation with Parker Davis from Answer One. My name is Parker Davis, and I am the CEO of Answer One, and we provide outsourced virtual receptionist services to the legal industry. Hi, Parker. Thanks for being with us today. So we're going to talk about how lawyers can increase their hours by bringing on an answering service. So tell me more about what we know about how lawyers spend their day. Sure. Well, uh, you know, every day is different when you're an attorney. And given that uh, they spend many, many hours driving to trial, driving to see potential clients, driving to see clients that they have in their stable, as well as conducting legal work and billing. In addition to that, there is a tremendous amount of administrative work that is associated with owning a law firm and, and, and practicing law from you know, doing your taxes at the end of the year to um, you know, paying any employees that you may have to answering the phones and, and, and scheduling appointments. So if I wanted to get an idea of how much time I could save by bringing on a virtual receptionist, how would I do that calculation? Sure. Um, Our data suggests that on balance, attorneys can save up to 20% of their day by having a virtual receptionist service help them. And on a day-to-day basis, it depends given, quite frankly, you know, how many clients you're working with at that particular time, how much marketing spend you've outlaid over the past couple of weeks, et cetera. But if you work a 10-hour day, which, you know, most of our attorneys do given what we know, our data suggests that you can grab two hours back. Okay. What are some of the advantages to doing it? And what are some of the other reasons why you might bring somebody on? Sure. There are many reasons, but we would like to focus on the following. We think this service in Answer One, quite frankly, helps you grow your business. And it helps you grow your business because by taking away the administrative work that you used to do, uh, you can focus on billable hours to increase your revenue. You know, I guess one of the benefits I sometimes bring up is that there's this sort of cognitive load cost of switching, right? When the phone rings, it's always an interruption. It, it always makes me stop what I'm doing 
and change modes. And sometimes I'm really focused on what I'm doing and I'm not in the mood to deal with somebody who's calling me with a legal problem, even though that is obviously my reason for existence. And so by, by handing it off to somebody else, it allows me to have a nice person whose job it is to answer the phone, pick up the line, and which is going to help me bring in more qualified leads, get more people in the door because they're not talking to my cranky voice because I got interrupted. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think everybody would acknowledge that, you know, the time that you're actually on the phone, you know, is time that you get back. But there's also a soft cost associated with being interrupted and answering that phone call. And so when you're deep in the middle of your work, an interruption can not only have that hard time associated with it, but it can probably also have five to 10 minutes of soft time that's wrapped around that call as well. So listeners, if you'd like to know more about how to increase billable hours, you can get a white paper from AnswerOne at AnswerOne.com slash lawyerist. That's Answer and the number one.com slash lawyerist. Thanks for being with us today, Parker. Thanks, Sam. Hi, my name is Ryan Holiday. I guess I primarily identify as an author. I've, I've written eight books about everything from from leadership to ancient philosophy to media manipulation. And uh, when I'm not writing books, I, I have a, a decent business uh, as a strategic advisor to public figures, authors, companies like Google and Complex and Taser and things like that. So that keeps me pretty busy. Cool. Thanks for being with us today, Ryan. And uh, just for listeners' benefit, uh, Aaron is unusually with us today too. And so we're going to conduct this as a three-way podcast. Ryan, I love that you primarily identify yourself as an author. Um, what other things have you identified yourself as in the past? Well, you know, I started my career as, as a marketer, which, you know, is a slightly easier thing to introduce yourself with at parties because people go, oh, cool. And then they don't ask you any follow up questions. Whereas when you identify as an author, then you have to describe your books and then people go, oh, I haven't heard of them. And, it, you know, it's a whole it's a whole thing. That's super awkward, right? Yeah. And so in your elevator pitch, you don't also identify as a rancher? No, uh, you know, so I, I have a small farm here in, in Texas. And uh, again, that usually spurs more questions than it answers. I'm very sensitive to the fact that uh, ranching in Texas has a certain connotation for locals that I, I don't want to be seen as uh, as being a poser uh, in. So <laughs> That's uh, fair. it's just a hobby. You're like a hipster rancher? Exactly. It's not, <laughs> it's, not, it's not real. This is a hobby. So we wanted to talk to you about your most recent book. Anybody who goes searching for your bibliography is going to find an eclectic collection, let's say. But your most recent one was sort of a, a, a journalistic nonfiction work about the Hulk Hogan Gawker fiasco, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's a bigger, much bigger story than that in my eyes. I mean, it, it's a story of a, of a billionaire, a sort of a quest for revenge uh, that worms its way through the American legal system and, and, and ultimately gets one of the largest media verdicts in American history. On the one hand, to me, the book is a telling of that story. And then I also use it as this opportunity to sort of do this larger meditation on strategy and power and in some ways sort of agency. What, what agency do we have over our ourselves, uh, over our own situations? It's this surreal story. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of the Count of Monte Cristo come to life. It's a it's a legal drama. It's a sort of current day statement on our political situations. It's all these things. It's this really surreal book that I 
I was just uh, obsessed with the story and felt like I sort of couldn't not write it. My takeaway from from the court case then was there are essentially no good guys in this story. Gawker is uh, kind of indefensible in their actions. Peter Thiel is using his wealth to manipulate the legal system, and Hulk Hogan is almost just a pawn, I suppose. Can you say more about the takeaway that people should get from your book without giving away the whole point of the writing of the book? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with the characterization that he uh, used his wealth to manipulate the legal system. It, in in many ways, this, this was the legal system working. I mean, the, the entire premise of the case was that here you have a, a celebrity who'd sort of done this weird, uh, insane thing. He'd slept with his best friend's wife. They had a had an open relationship. And then his best friend had illegally recorded this encounter, and then it ends up running on a, on a gossip website. You would think that uh, you'd have a pretty good case there if you're a whole Kogan. But, you know, it, it, as obviously there's, there's many lawyers listening to this. Uh, you know, suing a media outlet is basically like the most foolhardy thing you could possibly do. No one ever wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, Teal makes this joke uh, afterwards. He said the reason uh, that he backed Hulk Hogan was that Hogan being only a single digit millionaire effectively had no access to our legal system. And and in some ways, he's right. There's no way that Hulk Hogan would have won this case on his own. So ultimately, he gets in front of a jury. He wins a hundred and forty million dollar verdict. There's no way he could have afforded doing that on his own. The legal bills were were north of $10 million in this case. The lawsuit was filed in 2012. It doesn't get in front of a jury until 2016. He loses his job as part of it. He's, uh, his reputation is, is ruined. It's this knockdown, drag-out fight. Um, had he not had the backing of a billionaire, it almost certainly would have either been forced to be dropped or he wouldn't have had such good representation, he would have lost, or the other option would be, the better option would have been, he would have had to settle at some point, and then Gawker would have been, you know, not really learned anything from what happened and, and sort of gone into what he's doing. So to me, part of this was whether you agree that this should have happened or not, I'm interested in how this sort of individual, Peter Thiel, looks at this impossible circumstance. He's outed by Gawker in 2007, uh, sort of despairs at having any legal remedy because it's not legal. It's not illegal to out someone. Uh, he talks to all his powerful, famous friends. They say there's nothing you can do about it. And then he just sort of sits and waits for an opportunity stews. to, <laughs> yeah, he, he stews. It, it, he broods really. And he looks, mm-hmm. he pursues all these different things. None of it works until he finds this opportunity. He settles on this legal strategy of backing other cases for other plaintiffs, not on first amendment grounds, but on right to privacy grounds or copyright violations or any number of other cases that don't necessarily involve the First Amendment, uh, settles on the strategy, finds the whole Kogan case, and then ends up proceeding. So in some ways, to me, this is inspiring, not in its outcome, but in the creativity and the patience and the coordination that went into making it happen. And so you framed the book as a story about conspiracy or a prototype of a version of conspiracy distinct from kind of the aliens and federal reserve conspiracies that most people associate. And (laughs) as I read the story, which is great and everyone should read, it seems like you framed it with Peter Thiel as the protagonist of your story, but a flawed protagonist. And I'm just curious, as Sam mentioned, like everyone there is a little bit bad, how you think about that. 
Yeah, no, you're right. The, the the fundamental distinction of this book and why it's called conspiracy is that there is a distinction between conspiracy theories and, uh, as Teal would call them, old-fashioned conspiracies, right? So conspiracy theory is, was 9-11 an inside job? A conspiracy is, uh, you know, John Wilkes Booth uh, attempting to assassinate Lincoln and other members of the cabinet as a way of, you know, sort of stopping the end of the, the Union victory of the Civil War. There have been a number of real conspiracies in American history. I would say most of them bad. Uh, you know, so, some of them good. You could argue that a rebellion, uh, which America was, uh, is in some ways a conspiracy. So, you know, maybe going back even to the origins of the country, we have this idea of conspiracy. Um, so most conspiracies are bad, but some of them are good. And really, it's a neutral word. It's just what do you do with it? And so Teal is as flawed a protagonist as as any of the others, but in the end he wins. And so he's sort of the the quote unquote hero of the book in the sense that he was the victor. But then as soon as he wins, you've got to look at it as, you know, did he uh, what was the cost of this victory? Uh, did it outweigh the gains? You know, uh, what what were the unintended consequences of this victory? Part of the reason people have such a strong opinion about what happened here uh, that they didn't necessarily have when just the verdict was known is first the verdict comes out. We think Hulk Hogan has triumphed over Gawker. Then it's revealed that Teal was behind it. So now it was a billionaire beating up on a media outlet. And that's a different set of optics. And then a few months later, Teal backs Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. And now it looks like the an extremely powerful person uh, you know, exercising their will uh, unfairly on an unpowerful person. But the truth is, in 2007, you know, Gawker is an outlet that does millions and millions of pages per week. Uh, by 2012, when they run the story about Hogan, they're doing hundreds of millions, if not billions, of pages uh, a, a year. They, you know, they have revenues north of probably 40 million dollars a year. This is a 300 person, 300 million dollar company. This is two Goliaths going at it rather than really a David and Goliath story. But this is every media outlet's nightmare. I mean, it, it really was. Um, well, I, it, it, in some sense, yes. But the reason that it happened to one media outlet and not any other media outlet is that other media outlets don't run illicitly recorded sex tapes of celebrities. They might write about them. And had Gawker done so, we wouldn't be talking. It's that, uh, you know, if someone says very loudly, this sex tape was recorded without my consent, I intend to sue anyone that publishes it. And then you run it and then you get cease and desist about it. And then you get sued for it. Uh, the Atlantic would have handled the entire case from beginning to finish completely differently. And so would have the New York Times. And that's why it might be their nightmare, but it's a very unlikely nightmare. Although you say we wouldn't be talking about it had they not run the Hogan tape. But the reality is the whole reason we're talking about it is because Peter Thiel was willing to wait and wait and wait until he had the perfect case. So even if it hadn't been the Hogan tape, presumably there would have been some hook that Peter Thiel would have found and we still would be talking about it. Sure. But let's say the New York Times trashes one of my books and I'm so incensed by it that I say, I'm going to I'm going to get them right uh, I would wait. And you happen uh, to be a billionaire. <laughs> and I happen to be a billionaire. I'd probably uh, die before I got an opportunity like this one. Yeah. Because being a somewhat more circumspect and 
uh, rational and legally conservative media outlet, the New York Times isn't going to make an unforced error like running this tape or any of the other things that Gawker has done over its history. You know, it is, uh, the interesting thing about the Hogan tape is not just that that Hogan uh, that they did something to Hogan that he was willing to sue them that he had a chance to do this for, but there were a number of other cases that Teal you know this is a conspiracy not because Teal backs a single lawsuit Teal looks for dozens of lawsuits he approaches dozens of people almost no one is willing to go through with it mm. what what's actually unique here is that Hogan was willing to take this gamble and pay very dearly for it up until he gets the verdict. And, and so again, it's not its not even just, are you going to make an unforced error, but are circumstances going to align, your opponent's going to make an unforced error, and are you going to be able to find an ally who's willing to make that fight with you? To a certain extent, is this just sort of a natural consequence of um, the kind of hype cycle blog world reporting that you've written about on blogs on your uh, in your Trust Me, I'm Lying book, where uh, essentially... To sum it up for people, I think the the message is so much of the the blogosphere, which Gawker really defined, is about being the first to publish something that draws the eyeballs, and it doesn't really matter if it's accurate or not. And so that's a hype cycle you can take advantage of. Sure, it it feels like conspiracy is almost your um, see, guys, this is what's happened. Yeah, look, the the <laughs> the, the line from one of uh, the founders of TechCrunch was that uh, you know getting it right is expensive, getting it first is cheap. Yeah, uh, and that was sort of that's the, an Arrington quote, right? Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. the ethos of of the blogosphere for a really long time, and uh, it is true, except for when you end up making a cheap but catastrophic mistake. That ends up being so expensive that it it's like the financial death penalty for you, which is what happened in Gawker's case. You know, Gawker ran literally millions of articles, and it just happened that one of the times when they thought it would be easier and better to run the story before stopping and thinking about it and taking their time, they miscalculated to such a degree that they no longer exist. Is there? Do you think is there anything that lawyers can learn from this, or is this book? sort of nerd candy for lawyers and media people. No, I, I do think there's something to learn. I mean, first, it's not as if people had not sued Gawker before. Gawker had received literally thousands of cease and desist letters. They'd been sued at least a dozen or so times. What Teal did and what the attorney that he hired to sort of operate this conspiracy, Charles Harder did, who's now the attorney to Donald Trump, was that they, they sat back and were very creative about how they proceeded. So they did not, you know, Teal's, Teal's line as a startup entrepreneur has always been, he said, competition is for losers, right? He said, I want to do the things that no one else is doing. And in this case, you know, deciding not to fight Gawker where they had gone after him, but looking for a sort of out of the box, uh, unusual opportunity is where he was able to win this sort of enormous victory. And I think that's something for lawyers to take here is that it's not as if other people hadn't tried. They had just not thought about it as creatively as Teal had. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to hop on a completely different road and talk about modern stoicism and what lawyers can learn from your work on resilience and stoicism. So we'll be back in a minute. 
Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay. The legal environment is more competitive than ever, and small law firms are feeling the pinch. With over 1.3 million attorneys in the United States and counting, it can be hard to stand out from the crowd. That's why Spotlight Branding helps lawyers become unforgettable. Spotlight Branding is a different kind of internet marketing company. They don't put their clients on the SEO hamster wheel. They don't ask them to burn thousands of dollars on speculative pay-per-click advertising. Instead, they're focused on the fundamentals of legal marketing that have worked for centuries. They use the internet to build a premium brand for solo and small firm lawyers. They put systems in place to create top-of-mind awareness, allowing their clients to maximize referrals and repeat business. It's the smart way to grow your law firm. Learn more at spotlightbranding.com lawyerist. If you've ever considered doing estate planning but think it's too dry and boring or have been afraid it might not earn you what you need because you have to compete against LegalZoom or the dreaded $1,500 estate plans, check out the website estateplanningrules.com to get a free guide that lays out step-by-step -step how some lawyers are regularly commanding average fees of four dollars to $5,000 per estate plan, and you'll discover why regular, everyday people are happy to pay well for estate planning services that you'll love to provide. That's estateplanningrules.com, brought to you by New Law Business Model, where you get to love being a lawyer again. Okay, we're back. So, Ryan, maybe I should let Aaron tee this up because he is, as far as I know, a practicing modern Stoic. Yeah, in large part, thanks to you. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you've got four books, um, all of which cover kind of a different way of approaching this. So you've got The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, which is a daily reader, and then The Daily Stoic Journal as a way for people to input their thoughts. And you, along with maybe Tim Ferriss, have kind of jump-started this modern interpretation of an ancient philosophy and made ancient philosophy an interesting thing in Silicon Valley circles, etc. Where did that start? I was introduced to Stoicism when I was in college. I was, you know, taking philosophy in college. And for many people who are listening who might have taken a philosophy class in college, it's not exactly the most practical thing in the world. You're reading all these really interesting books, but it, there's not much in the, the way of like, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, here's how to live, right? Um, and, and that's sort of been the effect of academic philosophy for a very long time. So when I picked up Marcus Aurelius, um, whose book Meditations is this sort of historical anomaly and that it's like the private diary of the most powerful man in the world writing notes to himself about how to be better. So when I read this at 19 or 20, it just sort of hits me like this, you know, ton of bricks. It's just incredible. It's how to deal with your temper, how to be a good person, how to, how to deal with stress, how to uh, think about your own mortality, how to know where to put that desire you feel to be famous and important, like, you know, how to healthily manage that. So it's all these sort of really practical things. And just to put this in context for people like Marcus Aurelius took Rome to, I, I think, its greatest geographical extent. He was the most powerful person in the world writing private notes to himself that we get to read. Yeah. That's insane. It's so cool. Yeah. And, and look, even as a writer, I know what the effect of writing for an audience does, right? Mm -hmm. There's a performative element there. It's not as authentic and real as, 
if I was writing for myself. And so it's this incredible document. And so it hits me like this ton of bricks. And I'm like, wow, this is what I've been searching for my whole life. And so as I sort of rose through the ranks as like a promising, ambitious young person, uh, it was there for me. When I went through difficulties in my own life, it was there for me. When I went through good times, it was there for me. And so it's just something I've been writing about for a long time. And and I wanted to sort of popularize stoicism, but I also understood that like, Almost no one is that interested in philosophy. And so The Obstacle is the Way was an attempt to present a lot of the wisdom of Stoicism, but in the context of sort of inspiring stories from history uh, as a way to solve problems, uh, you know, practical problems in the course of one's career, life, business, uh, whatever, and have that be very influenced by Stoicism. And it was just sort of this, you know, surprise hit that ended up making its way through the NFL and college basketball and professional baseball and Silicon Valley and all these sort of uh, the military and all these really great communities. And then the other books followed from there. And so our profession of small firm lawyers is widely known, definitely externally, as being full of narcissists and egomaniacs and competitive type A personalities who like to argue and hold a grudge. And I think largely a lot of that is true. We spend a lot of time on our show and in the work we do trying to encourage lawyers to have a better sense of what their life goals should be and building practices around achieving those things reasonably and building in work-life balance and things. But it's a profession that's plagued with mental health challenges and addiction and abusive behavior and imbalance. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on how you advise other kind of ambitious professionals on how stoicism can help them find more balance in their lives. Well, it is funny. I guess the connection between stoicism and, and the legal profession goes back you know, even to ancient Rome, there would have been many Stoic lawyers. But, you know, Cicero was sort of a student and fan of Stoicism. I certainly read and wrote about it a great deal. And is you know, sort of our first and most famous lawyer. But I think ultimately what Stoicism is about, to me, my sort of definition of it has long been like a Stoic believes that they don't control the world around them, but they control how they respond. They control themselves inside that world. And so the Stoic is it puffed up, when things are good, you know, a stoic is it knocked down when things are bad. A stoic is sort of disciplined, orderly, confident without being egotistical, humble without being weak, and is sort of facing the problems that they have running a business or in the courtroom or at home with this sort of equanimity. I mean, like, uh, if you think about, uh, you know, a lawyer doesn't necessarily pick their clients. Uh, they don't they certainly don't pick uh, the judge that they get or their opponents or they don't they don't even pick the laws. But what they try to do within that is the best possible job given those circumstances. They try not to be knocked down by any of it. They try not to be despondent. They try not to be too aggressive or too vindictive, but they just try to do a really good job within the framework of the situation that they're seeing. And that, that, that requires creativity, that requires perseverance, that requires clear-headedness, it certainly requires some objectivity. And, and so to me, these are very Stoic traits. And you know, you can pick up any page in Marcus Aurelius or the Daily Stoic, and you're going to see lessons in that regard. And that's why I think so amazing about the philosophy. Am I being overly reductive to compare 
modern stoicism to sort of the golf rule of play it where it lies. Like it doesn't matter how the ball got there. You you have to hit it now and you have to put your head down and focus and get it to the cup. No, that that's exactly right. And, and Epictetus is one of the famous stoics actually uses the, the metaphor. They didn't have golf, but he uses a metaphor of a ball player. You know, a ball player is not obsessed with whether you got a good throw or a bad throw. You have to catch the ball. Right. Uh, and, that, and, that, and that's that's the true for for a lawyer, you know. You inherit a case that someone else bungled before you. You can't go back in time. You can only go forward. And so a stoic is sort of very forward-based. It's not passive in the sense of like, oh, there's nothing I can do, so I'm just going to lie here. It's saying, look, complaining or whining or blaming others isn't going to do anything. I've got to put this on my shoulders and see what I can do. Well, I think one aspect of stoicism that I think is really useful for lawyers is this aspect, which is around kind of the internal resiliency and equanimity in whatever situation is presented. I think another valuable aspect of stoicism, especially for lawyers, is to properly frame your ambitions. And I think lots of professionals, but maybe lawyers in particular, get caught up in external success, caring what other people think, driving a lawyer car, dressing like a lawyer, rather than stepping back and figuring out whether they are building the life they want. Sure. Uh, our mutual friend Jason Gaynard has a quote he uses a lot about how he found himself trapped in a job that he was doing work he hated to afford things he didn't want to impress people he didn't like. And I think that's an attitude that a lot of ambitious people get in when their ambitions are misaligned. I think that's totally right. I mean, there's this one powerful passage in Seneca where he's talking about he's sort of pitying the old lawyer. They should be retired and enjoying their life. And instead, he says they're they're pleading cases, you know, on behalf of clients they don't know, they don't care about because they can't let it go. They, they want the fame and the money more than anything else. And, you know, the Stoics talk a lot about time management, not in the sense of like, how do you be more efficient and productive, but more like time is the most valuable asset that you have. It's the only non-renewable asset. And so are you going to throw that time after stuff you don't want, that you don't need, that doesn't make you happy? Or are you going to get real introspective and think about, okay, what kind of life do I want? What makes me happy? What is what was I put on this earth to do? And am I am I making a good use of the limited time that we have? You know, the Stoics were sort of very aware, given that life was more fragile then, of just how tenuous our hold on existence is. You could get a brain tumor tomorrow. You could get hit by a bus. You could get drafted to fight in a war. These are things that are very real, uh, very random, and they don't care whether you're the most successful person in the world or the least successful. And so you better make sure that you're spending your time properly because you can't get it back. Ryan, I'm, I'm curious. So I'm, I'm a bit of a classics nerd. And I there there were sort of three schools of ancient philosophy, at least, who were um, going for the same concept of the good life or eudaimonia, right? Uh -huh. So they're they're trying to figure out the skeptics, the Epicureans, and the Stoics. And I'm I'm wondering why did you pick Stoicism? Was did it did you just feel an affinity towards it, or did you look at the others and and think, no, nah, you know, these just don't adapt well to modern life? Because this is just me nerding out on classics now. This is no, not, sure, this I, is my tangent. <laughs> and I I probably throw the the cynics in there as a as a major school sure. as well. Yep. Um, I think when you look at which one overlaps best to where we are now, the fact that, you know, on the Stoic end of the spectrum, the most famous Stoic is Marcus Aurelius. He's the emperor. 
Uh, probably the second most famous Stoic or, or well-read Stoic is Epictetus, who is this former slave. Uh, and in fact, Epictetus greatly influences Marcus Aurelius. To me, it is it is a philosophy that is best designed for adversity and success. And then in the middle are the hundreds of thousands or millions or however many there were of, of Stoics that we've never heard of that just lived totally normal, average happy, productive, sort of disciplined lives. And that's where I think we're all trying to be here in the West, right? You know, I, I think there's a lot of brilliant insights in Buddhism, but Buddhism to me has always been a philosophy that is not not so much of the world, right? It's sort of a, with, a withdrawal from the world. Um, sure, there's, you know, sort of samurais and some things like that. But what I love about Stoicism, what has always struck me as so practical and relatable about it. It's like these were real people who had real jobs. They had families. They had ambitions. And stoicism was this sort of framework or toolkit that helped them do those things they were trying to do, but also question the excesses of some of those drives and it sort of keep them sane and happy and uh, well-nourished as they were out doing those very human things. So if somebody wanted to learn more about Stoicism, where should they start? Yeah. One of the reasons we wrote The Daily Stoic was that I picked up Marcus Aurelius first and it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. But I hear from some people, they're like, you know, this is this is just sort of a random collection of thoughts. You know, it's not yeah. linear enough for me. And so I, I totally get that. So what I've thought about is, OK, well, maybe you read Seneca and it's not for you. So The Daily Stoic is this is this sort of collection, uh, sort of a greatest hits model of the Stoics, and then it, it, it's tried to apply it in really concrete lessons. So you can read the book, or we also do an email at dailystoic.com, which is free and is a pretty good place to start, too. Ryan, I'm, I'm curious. There are a number of aspects to your interests that you have written about, uh, and I, I'd like you to reflect for a moment on how you think about your very measured Stoic approach to life and how you go back and, and reflect on your earlier work when you were um, working for Tucker Max, and, who most lawyers probably know about, or when you were working at American Apparel as a marketer and going rogue. I don't know. You, were, you had this idea of taking yeah. advantage of and manipulating the media to your advantage. Those feel inconsistent to me. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, uh, Seneca was an advisor to Nero, uh, so I feel like pretty much, pretty <laughs> I'm much. I'm not sure a, what you're a, saying a, with that, but you, it didn't start well. Okay. <laughs> pretty much any, anything on on that side of it uh, strikes me as uh, you know, if Seneca managed to redeem himself, I don't feel that worried about right. wh how it's going to even out for me in the long run. But there is this sort of tension of stoicism being a philosophy of the world. You have a real job and real clients and real incentives to do this or that, right? And so just like lawyers are going to, you know, you find yourself representing clients maybe you don't like, or you find yourself really successful in a particular specialty that maybe isn't as great for the world as, as maybe you dreamed of being uh, in, in law school or in, in, you know, in middle school or something. So there's always this tension between sort of what we do and who we are. And I think part of philosophy is about integrating those things. And so, you know, I, I was successful early as a marketer at a number of controversial clients. Why I ended up writing this book, trust me, I'm lying, is I was very alarmed by it. I saw the road that I was on. I didn't like it. I didn't like, uh, although I felt I could justify or at least rationalize what I had done, I found, I, I found that it was setting a dangerous precedent or in fact that the, the same tactic could be used in 
less or more harmful ways. And so part of the reason I wrote a book in 2012 that was sort of an expose about how these tactics work and sort of showed the loopholes in our sort of current media system is I was very alarmed by it. And I, I, I was worried about where that system was going as it happened. Uh, you know, the book sold well, but not, not too many people in a position to do anything about it listened to me. If anything, that book was a warning against where we happen to find ourselves now. I mean, I ended up re-updating the book and adjusting it in a lot of ways because the, the 2016 election was just sort of a master class in exactly the kinds of tactics I was warning against in that book. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because earlier you kind of said that blogs aren't as manipulable as they used to be. But then we have the 2016 election where it feels like fake news is almost exactly what you were talking about and used both as an accusation and a description of what's actually going on. Well, no, it's not that I don't think that blogs aren't as manipulable as they once were. It's that the consequences are now much more evident. And there are some mechanisms to, like, you know, when you're a blog in your basement, one of the problems is that it's no one's going to come after you because you don't have any assets. As Gawker rose to be a $300 million company, but it never sort of updated its uh, its methodology, it was increasingly vulnerable, whether it knew it or not, to this kind of legal action. I think we're starting to see some society wake up to the fact that although Facebook is free, it exerts an enormous cost on society and, you know, there's probably going to be a number of legal actions taken against it in the wake of this election, probably governmental actions as well. <laughs> and so the book was supposed to be a warning. Not as many people heard it as I like, but it was also a, a sort of a conscience clearing for me and and the end of a chapter of my life. And so I, I'm not I'm not pretending that the, the pages of that book are consistent with stoicism. That's sort of the point. So you've got a few different books that touch on marketing and getting creative work out to an audience. So starting with Trust Me, I'm Lying, which, as you mentioned, is kind of an expose of tactics that our audience probably can't and shouldn't employ, all the way to your more recent one, Perennial Seller, that's about how to create lasting creative works and get them to an audience that will love them in a very sustainable and ethical way. And I'm curious, kind of in that progression of writing you've done, whether you see some takeaways for a professional audience of small firm lawyers and how both kind of marketing strategy and tactics might apply to professional services work that is under an ethical regulation umbrella. Yeah. I mean, what I think is cool about the legal profession is it's like, if you do a good job, you know, you manage your practice well. It could be one of those sort of multi-generational family businesses, provided people actually, you know, sort of want to do that. And and that's similar with writing. You know, if you write a book that does a really good job for people, the material is timeless, that book can endure and, and endure. And so I think on the one hand, look, marketing is the art of getting attention. Uh, if you don't get attention, you don't get any clients, you know, you never get started. But ultimately, the best marketing you can do is to do a really good job in a defined market that really needs your services. And so I think it's sort of a combination of those two approaches that creates sort of sustainable, profitable uh, business models. It's like you've got to be new and exciting and interesting and at the same time be sort of timeless and dependable and sort of quietly wonderful. And it's sort of this balance that creates the, the kind of business that endures. Well, and I would say in Perennial Seller, you've got a whole section about how creating a great work on its own 
isn't necessarily enough that you also then have to find its audience and tell the story. Right. Um, and I think too many lawyers rely on the fact that I'm a good lawyer and provide great service. Therefore, clients will just come. Right. And I, th I think there is marketing for lawyers to learn. Yeah, no, no, I, th I think that's right. And, and you got to realize that, sure, perhaps in a utopia, just being great, if no lawyers did any marketing, then naturally uh, the one that was best would, you know, get the most word of mouth and that would be it. But you're competing against the people that run, you know, scammy television commercials and have ridiculous billboards and chase ambulances and whatever, right? And so if you don't market, in some ways you're seeding the field to the people that do. Well, we have covered a wide variety of topics today, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, Ryan. No, thank you for having me. And it's been great to talk. And thank you for the, the support on the stoicism stuff. It's, it's wonderful to hear you're using it. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thank you, guys. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. 